0: What an absolute blessing to be a part of what God is doing. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to go ahead and turn to the Gospel of Mark. Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. Um, We're going to just keep moving forward in our study of the Gospel of Mark. And I'll tell you this morning is one of the most difficult passages in the entire book of Mark to teach. As a matter of fact, a famous atheist named Bertrand Russell, many of you may have heard that name, wrote a famous book called Why I Am Not a Christian. And our passage of scripture is one of the reasons that he gives for being unable to believe that Jesus is who Jesus says he is. Other atheists have even referred to various parts of this passage of scripture as evidence that the Bible just is not true. Whether it's the activities of Christ in the temple, whether it's the claims of Jesus about prayer, this is a passage that non-believers throughout the world have pointed at over time to say this is evidence that the Bible isn't true. And I guess we could skip this passage because it's difficult. Do you wanna do that? I don't, no, we don't do that, right? So I guess we won't do that. Uh, We'll plow through, but here's what we're we're gonna do. We're gonna acknowledge that we need the Holy Spirit to teach us his truth. We need the word of God to be clear through his power. And so let's rest in the Spirit's power to make clear to us today what we need most to understand. And let's, by God's grace, trust him With the many questions that some of us might have that I won't be able to answer in this day. Trusting that God will give us light over time to know exactly what He wants us to know in this great and powerful and difficult passage of Scripture. So, with that in mind, let's just jump into our next passage of study in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 11. We'll begin making our way a little bit at a time through this text, beginning in verse 12. It says, On that following day, when they, Jesus and His disciples, came from Bethany, He was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Stop right there. Okay, so Jesus we saw just entered Jerusalem. Uh, Last week we looked at the triumphal entry. This is the next day. He's coming in to begin his final week of ministry here on the earth. He's hungry and he's He sees a tree, a fig tree that's full of leaves. So he goes over to the fig tree to see if there are any figs on it that he can eat for breakfast. And when he discovers that there are no figs on this tree, he curses it. Now, this is a problem for some people. Because it looks like Jesus is taking out his frustration on a fig tree just because it wasn't the season for it to have fruit. And I've got to tell you, this sounds like one of the parts of the gospel where Jesus acts like we would act if we had the power of God. What I mean is if I drove by a Krispy Kreme donut and they had the red hot fresh donut sign flashing and I went in and found out there were no actual donuts in the store, if I had power, I would condemn that store immediately, right? For false advertisement. And it seems like that's what is happening here. It sounds like something we would do, misusing divine power. It doesn't sound like something the perfect son of God might do. So the question becomes, why is going on? Well, there are a few things I think we should consider that help us get to the point of what Jesus is intending by cursing the fig tree. First, it's important to know that Jesus is teaching his disciples an object lesson. Verse 14 explicitly states that Jesus spoke to the tree in a way that the disciples... Could hear Jesus is teaching his followers a lesson here. And what that means is that his encounter with the fig tree isn't really about the fig tree. And some of you probably know this kind of dynamic in your own lives. When my kids were young, there were times when I acted like I was trying to feed one of their baby dolls as a way to encourage them to eat their own food. Anybody ever do something like that? open up for daddy, I'd be saying to the doll baby. Now, here's the reality. I would act disappointed or sad when the baby wouldn't take a bite. Daddy's so sad. Is it getting weird? Okay, I feel a little weird about this. I did not actually expect the baby doll to open its mouth and take a bite. It was an object lesson. I was teaching my children something or I was wanting to convey something. And that's similar to what Jesus is doing in this text. He isn't actually angry at the tree. He's using this tree as an object lesson for his disciples. And that brings us to the next way to see the point of what he's saying. There are different stages of development for figs. In Jerusalem, mature figs would develop on these trees between the months of June and November, however, earlier in the year, those figs would start off as small buds, and so by the time that that fig leaf would be full of leaf, or fig tree would be full of leaves, even though it wasn 't the season for mature ripe figs, that tree should have been filled with immature figs that weren 't ripe enough for harvest but still were edible, so that if you were in a pinch, you could go and eat them and they didn 't taste as good as a ripe fig, but they could still be eaten and the tree in our story. It says is nothing but leaves. Even though it was full of leaves, it was barren of fruit. Now keep that in mind. That helps us understand what Jesus is doing. There's also many different varieties of fig trees in Israel during the time of Christ. And while more, most of them bore fruit during the same season, there were a few rare species of fig trees. That would bear fruit out of season. And so the number one way to figure out whether a tree had fruit on it, besides just looking up close to see like Jesus does, is to see the condition of the leaves. They would tell you whether or not that tree had fruit. And Jesus looks at this big tree and he sees that those leaves are filled out on the tree, indicating that it should have some level of fruit, even though it wasn't fig season. And so the question becomes, so, so what's the point? When you add all this together, Jesus is teaching an object lesson and these fig trees, when they have this kind of leaf, should have some sort of fruit on them. What, what, what is all the point? Well, the point is this. We have a tree here that's advertising fruit, but it's completely barren. It's all show, it's no substance. And when a hungry person comes to be nourished, They walk away as hungry as they were when they arrived. And that brings us to the lesson of the fig tree. Jesus is saying this. Hypocrisy isn't acceptable. Jesus doesn't endorse it. He doesn't ignore it. Jesus opposes it. That's the object lesson he's teaching them. Hypocrisy, saying you're full of fruit while you're actually barren, is not acceptable. Jesus opposes it. And Jesus teaches his disciples that lesson because of what he's getting ready to do next. Look at verse 15 in our text. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Okay, stop right there. Immediately after giving the disciples his object lesson of hypocrisy, Jesus goes in the temple and what does he do? He confronts the hypocrisy there in the temple. He says, this place was supposed to be a house of prayer for all of the nations, but you've made it into a den of thieves. Let me just give you a little bit of temple context so you can understand some of what Jesus is saying here. For a thousand years, the temple in Jerusalem was the place on earth where God had chosen to most powerfully and clearly manifest his presence on the face of earth. It was the primary place of worship and of sacrifice for God's people. And you need to know, it wasn't intended to be this exclusive club for ethnic Jews. From the very beginning, God had invited anyone from all of the nations to come and worship him as part of his people in the temple. The, 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 the invitation was open for every tribe, every tongue and nation to worship God. So when God gave the plan for the temple, that plan was represented in the architecture of the temple. The largest part of the temple was actually a courtyard for the Gentiles. Here's an artist rendering of the temple at the time of Christ. Do you know how this is an artist rendering and not a photograph? They didn't have cameras 2,000 years ago. So that's how you know. It's an artist rendering. And I want you to notice the structure right there in the center, that white large building there in the middle, that's the most holy place in that spot. Is the Holy of Holies? It was it was covered with a, a, a curtain, a thick curtain that you had to pass through, and it was the place right there in the temple where the spirit and the power and the glory of God were manifest in the temple, and no one could go there. That, that curtain separated the people from the presence of God. Only once a year, a high priest could walk in and offer sacrifice on behalf of the sin of God's people. But surrounding that special place, the most holy place, you see those courtyards on either side. You notice how large those courtyards are. Those are the courtyards for the Gentiles. So you can see that God had a plan that was reflected even in the design of the temple that all of the nations could worship him at the temple. But there was a practical problem to encounter. When people were coming from such long distances to worship and sacrifices, it was really difficult to bring their sacrifice with them on their journey. And so God made a, a provision for people who were journeying long distances to worship at the temple. They would be able to buy their sacrifices once they got to Jerusalem, And by the time that Jesus walks into the temple, that that provision of God to help needy people who've been traveling and were hungry spiritually and came to worship in the presence of God. That that practice of selling sacrifices had turned the courtyards there at the temple into the type of supermarket atmosphere where people were selling sacrifices all over the place for marked up prices. It was kind of like shopping at the airport. You just couldn't believe the extravagant markup on all of these sacrifices. People were taking advantage of the fact. That these poor people who traveled long distances, hungry for the presence of God, would need their services. And rather than serve them, they exploited them. They would change money, and there was a, a particular currency that was accepted at the temple. And so they would exchange your money from wherever you came in the world for a pretty extravagant fee. So the court of the Gentiles there had become such a crazy atmosphere that people didn't even regard it as a temple anymore. As a matter of fact, they would take it as a shortcut to get from one side of the city to the next. You can see how large that is. If you didn't walk through the temple and you wanted to get to the other side, you had quite a journey around the temple. And so people began to disregard the holiness of the temple to the point that they just used it as a shortcut for their personal convenience. Okay, so you guys can take the picture of the temple down and just keep that in mind. This place that was supposed to be the glory and worship of God had become corrupt with hypocrisy. And from the outside, it looked like a thriving place of worship filled with people, filled with sacrifices, filled with life. But inside, it's a place where selfishness, And greed and personal convenience became more important than holiness and God's glory and serving people in need. Like the fig tree, it advertised spiritual fruit but was completely barren. And what was the lesson of the fig tree? Hypocrisy isn't acceptable. Jesus doesn't endorse it and he doesn't ignore it. He opposes it. And so when Jesus shows up, Right here on this first day, he comes to bring judgment. He's not being impulsive. He's not being irrational. Think about the fact that Jesus has been serving in Israel for years now, and he's been calling people to repent. His first visit to the temple teaching was when he was 12 years old. He spent the last three years going from synagogue to synagogue, calling the religious people and leaders of Israel to repent because the kingdom of God was at hand. But the people refused to repent. They rejected Jesus. And in his place, they oversaw a system that was corrupt and fruitless and called worshipped. And Jesus rejected That religious system. He turns over the tables. In in a, a precursor to Bobby Knight. He throws chairs across the floor. He confronts. He condemns the entire charade. Because Jesus is angry over sin. He's angry over the abuse of his people. He's angry over the charade that takes Hungry, hurting people coming to God. And rather than serves them, exploits them. And this is kind of where we really need to zoom out and see the bigger picture of what Jesus is doing here. In two chapters, listen to what Jesus says. Mark chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Jesus says, Do you see all these great buildings? Replied Jesus. Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. After Jesus rejects the hypocritical religion of the temple, he prophesies about the destruction of the temple. Now, the prophecy of the temple being destroyed was fulfilled in 70 AD when the Roman emperor, do you know what Roman emperor it was? Titus. I'm not kidding. When he completely demolished the temple, leveled it. My mom said young Titus could do the same thing to his bedroom, just level the whole thing. Well, in 70 AD, that occurs. This temple that had been rejected during the ministry of Christ and prophesied about being destroyed by Christ is, is leveled completely, not to be rebuilt to this day. And as Jesus, though, was hanging on the cross Another significant event before the destruction of the temple occurred. Listen to Matthew chapter 27. It says this in verse fifteen fifty-one: 51. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. You see that? The curtain at the temple was the entrance to the most holy place. It was the entrance of the holy of holies where the presence of God was actually manifest. And that curtain was there as a reminder that our sin had separated us from God. That's why the only person who could walk in was the high priest once a year offering sacrifices for the sins of God's people. And Jesus, as he dies on the cross, he dies as what? A sacrifice for our sin. The sacrifice that allows us to actually be forgiven and restored to God. The sacrifice that gives us the privilege of entering God's presence as his children. And the reality is this. All of those sacrifices that happened at the temple in Jerusalem for a thousand years. They were just a shadow of the reality of the sacrifice that Jesus was coming to make, and once Jesus ultimately made the ultimate sacrifice, no other sacrifices needed to be made. And nothing else would separate God's people from him when they would trust in Jesus. And here's what that meant. It means that Jesus didn't reject the temple as much as he replaced the temple. Listen to Paul's letter to the Corinthians. First Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20 says this. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Do you see this? God's design is for his people to be his new temple. He wants to make his presence and his power and his glory known in this world like he did through that temple. Only Jesus makes a brand new way to have a brand new kind of temple. He doesn't so much bring an end to the temple in Jerusalem. He brings a beginning to the temple of God in his people. As a matter of fact, God has a plan to one day restore the temple in Jerusalem. And I don't even have time to go down that road at all. But what, what, what God is doing through Christ in the meantime is he is making a new kind of temple in a new kind of person. A person who's trusting in Christ, forgiven of their sin, restored to God, given access to his holy presence, and enabled to display his power and glory on this earth. Listen, friend, if you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are the temple of God. Now listen to me, if you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, today is your day. Don't allow another moment to go by. Don't leave this place without doing so. If you will place your faith and trust in Jesus, the promise is this. You will be forgiven of all your sin. And you will be restored to God as your father. And you will be given access to God your father. Here in this life and for eternity to come. You can be the temple of almighty God. Having been filled with his spirit and his Power by his grace if you will just trust in Jesus. What an amazing truth. What a gospel truth. What an invigorating idea that you, yeah, you and your spouse and your kids and your neighbor and the people around you, you are the temple of almighty God. Filled with his spirit if you're trusting in his son. That's an invigorating thought, but you know what? Given the context of what we're studying this morning, it's also a sobering thought, isn't it? Do you remember the lesson of the fig tree? Hypocrisy isn't acceptable. Jesus doesn't endorse it. He doesn't ignore it. What does he do? He opposes it. What does Jesus do with a temple that advertises to be filled with life but is filled with Greed and materialism and selfishness. What does Jesus do when people who are called by his name value their way of doing things more than pursuing his glory? Or they value personal gain more than serving his people in need. What does he do? He opposes it. So the question, and and while I felt tempted even as I was studying to camp out a little bit on the hypocrisy of the American church... And I had some really good things to say here in an election year about the alignment of the American church with the political influence, like it was there in the day of Jesus. As tempted as I was, and I, apparently I, I just fitted into the sermon. I really felt like what God was stirring me to was to move into the rest of this text. Because the question isn't so much, are we the temple of God? The Bible says that very clearly if we're trusting in Christ. And it's not just that hypocrisy is not okay. It's not acceptable. The question really becomes, how do we, now that we are God's temple, glorify God? How do we, how do we see as God's people our lives become adorned with something that isn't just the leaf of religion, but is the fruit of his spirit? How do we keep from being like the people in the story who rejected Christ as they held to their religious tradition? Well, that's what the rest of our text reveals. Let's keep moving in verse 20, Mark eleven twenty 20. It says, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree wither away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. You see what happens? The following day, Jesus and his disciples are heading right back to the temple. They pass the fig tree that symbolized the hypocritical religious system of Israel displayed in the temple. And like the religious hypocrites, the fig tree that is the object lesson has withered away all the way to its roots. It's completely dead from top to bottom. And the disciples are struck by the contrast. The temple was empty of spiritual power. It was devoid of spiritual fruit. But right here in front of him is a visual reminder. Jesus isn't like that. He isn't devoid of spiritual power or fruit. Jesus is full of miraculous spiritual power. And what does Jesus say is the key? To authentic spiritual power that keeps us from becoming religious hypocrites. What's his word, his instruction? Verse 22, he says, have faith in God. As they look at this display of Christ's miraculous power, and they say, how how does this happen? How is this so different than what we saw at the temple? Jesus responds by saying, have faith in God. Jesus is saying, authentic spiritual power comes through genuine faith in God. God. And that gives us our big idea for this morning. Our big idea is this authentic spiritual power comes through genuine faith in God. Friend, authentic spiritual power is not something we can manufacture on our own. It's not found in the work that we do for God, no matter what that work might be. It is found in the work that God alone can do in us. That word faith means to believe or trust. In someone or something. And who are we to believe? We're to believe in God. And who are we to trust? We're to trust in God. So when Jesus confronts hypocrisy, notice what he's doing. He isn't calling us to straighten up our lives by our own power. He's telling us to look to God by believing all of God's promises and relying on all of God's power. He's saying, put away self-righteousness the hypocrisy of thinking you can do something for God and humbly bow before God in simple faith saying, God, you have to do it or it won't get done. Have faith in God. And in the time that we have left, what I want us to see is that Jesus gives us three expressions of what that kind of faith in God actually looks like. And I just warn you, every one of these three could be a sermon to itself. So you're going to get about four sermons today. Congratulations. It's cold outside. You've got no other place to go. Let me just just tell you. We'll walk through them. And and, and the reason I say this is because I was tempted again to make this three different sermons. But I really felt the Spirit leading me to... Include this together because that's how Jesus teaches it to his disciples. So I know there will be questions you have that I won't answer. But I want us to see that Jesus is saying to tap into spiritual power. You don't trust in yourself. You trust in God. You trust in me. You depend on me. And depending on me looks like a certain thing. Notice the first thing he says. Genuine faith in God is marked by confident prayer. To God. Verse 22 says, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. Guys, the first expression of genuine faith in God is confident prayer to God. Jesus says, Listen, prayer connects you to the kind of power. That can literally take mountains and move them into the sea. In other words, he's saying, our world, your world, can be transformed by the effective prayers of God's people when they simply depend on on the kind of God who can move mountains by his miracle working power. When we pray with the kind of faith that believes that God can and will do the impossible, Jesus says, you know what you'll see? You'll see God do the impossible. Now, it's important not to rip this out of biblical context. Jesus isn't saying, hey, pray with this kind of name it, claim it kind of prayer that basically turns God into your cosmic butler. That's not what Jesus is saying. The emphasis here... That Jesus is giving us is that effective prayer is filled with confidence in the power of God. So don't make this teaching about having faith in the power of prayer. Have faith in the power of God. And don't have faith in the power of faith. It's not about how good or strong your faith is. It's about how big and strong your God is. So don't rip it out of biblical context. Even more, listen to the way that 1 John teaches this concept. 1 John chapter 5, verse 14-15 through 15 says this, And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, We know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. See that John is effectively saying the same thing as Jesus says. Have confidence in God. If you ask, you will receive with that type of confidence. But he adds that phrase, according to his will. He's saying that when we pray in confidence, we're praying with a belief in God's power that is in alignment with God's will. We're not telling God what to do when we pray with confidence. We're praying in alignment with what God wills to do so we can pray with confidence. But the question becomes how can we know what God wills? Like, how can we know what He wants to do? And here's the simple answer God's will is most clearly found in God's Word, the Bible. So we can know that we're praying in according to God's will when we're praying according to God's word, the Bible. I'll give you a for instance. We can confidently pray no matter what our needs are. God, meet my need. Did you know you can pray that with confidence? And no, he will meet your need. Did you know that? Yeah. How do you know that? Because Philippians four nineteen says, and my God shall supply how many of your needs? all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. So you can pray with confidence, not because you're dictating to God, your cosmic butler, because you're bowing before God and his word and saying, God, you have said it. I have faith in you. I believe your promises and you can and will do it. I depend on your power. I have faith in you. And when those things come together, you believe God's promises and depend on God's power. What does it look like? It looks like confident praying. And you can do this. Is, when I was praying about this morning, I said, God, this isn't a very funny sermon. So I need you because we don't rely on funny sermons here, right? I hope not. What do we rely on? That the promise of God's word is my word will not return void, but will accomplish every purpose with which I've sent it. That, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable to equip the man of God for every good work. That the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And as I was praying for you this morning, I prayed, God, and you say very clearly that he who plants and he who waters is nothing but God who gives the growth. And we could pray. I could pray for you this morning. Why? With confidence. With confidence. Because God has promised in his word by faith. That's what Jesus says, unites us to power. Have faith in God. By faith that God's promises are true and independence into his power, we pray with confidence. Genuine faith is expressed through confident prayer to God. So let me ask you this. What do you need to be claiming in confident prayer before God today? What does his word aligned with your life look like? In confident prayer. What are you praying in confident prayer? You want to know how you live apart from hypocrisy into spiritual authenticity? It's when you bow before God and say, God, if you don't do it, it won't get done. And so here I am in prayer to you today. What does it look like in your life? Genuine faith is marked by confident prayer to God. Number two, genuine faith is marked by gracious forgiveness of others. Look at verse 25. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who's in heaven may forgive you and your trespasses. Remember, these hypocrites that are in the temple are filled with self-righteousness to the point that they will not believe Jesus. Self-righteousness is the root of their hypocrisy. That means people who come to God in spiritual authenticity have to acknowledge, first and foremost, I'm not righteous. Not in and of myself. We have to realize we don't deserve God's blessing. What do we deserve? We deserve God's judgment. It's only by grace. The grace of God flowing to us through Jesus that we can enter into his presence. And so the hypocrisy of the religious leaders wasn't that they were broken and sinful people. It's that they refused to acknowledge they were broken and sinful people. And I know there's an accusation against the church that people like to level against us. That church is full of hypocrites. And what's the evidence? Because they're all a bunch of sinners. Guys, we've never advertised anything different than that. This is a room full of sinners. Broken, sinful people. Our claim is not our perfection. What is our claim? It's the grace of God to us in Jesus. We are broken people in need of God's grace. And it is not hypocrisy to say that we are broken and sinful people because our only claim is God's grace. And listen, the reality that Jesus is saying is that when we acknowledge in humble repentance that our only hope for blessing is the goodness and grace of God, one of the marks of being a person who's transformed by grace in Jesus is that we desire to see the grace of Jesus extended to others That we would be marked by a spirit of humble contrition that says, God, I am no better than them. We are all in need of grace. And that's why Jesus says that as we're transformed by the powerful grace of Jesus, we desire to see the powerful grace of Jesus transform others. That's extending forgiveness to those around us. And I know for many in this room, that is a massive mountain of a hurdle for you. You've been sinned against in terrible ways. And you live with scars and reminders of other people's sin. And then you struggle in a verse like this because you feel like a hypocrite. Because those relationships are unresolved. And I've got to tell you, I actually think it's no accident that Jesus gives this command to forgive in the middle of this specific context. What I mean by that is this text is surrounded by examples of Jesus having unresolved conflict with other people. He just came out of the temple, overthrowing tables because people refused to repent. And he's getting ready to go into a conversation with the religious leaders who reject him to the point of putting him to death. So forgiveness isn't the same as reconciliation because reconciliation often requires something from the other person, namely repentance, And and forgiveness isn't the same as ignoring sin and acting like it doesn't exist. Jesus turned the tables upside down to confront the sin of those who committed it. Forgiveness isn't ignoring. It's not covering up sin. Forgiveness is something else entirely. What is it? It's releasing our right to hurt others. It's releasing our desire to pay people back. It's embracing the grace of God to us that desires the grace of God to work in their heart. Leading them to repentance. Leading them to trust in Jesus. That's why Jesus, though he was unreconciled to the people who had him crucified, would still pray, Father, forgive them. And guys, don't forget what we've already said. Genuine faith in God trusts in his power and not our own. And the only way we can show this type of forgiving grace is by what? By bowing before him and saying, in prayer, depending on his power... Jesus, be Jesus in me. Help me forgive with the same grace you've extended to me. So let me ask you, where is there a place where you need grace to forgive those that have sinned against you? Why don't you bring that before God to prayer this morning and ask Him to help you release this desire to pay them back and ask that God would give you a desire that they would turn to Jesus and experience the same grace. He's extended to you. Genuine faith, finally, and we'll wrap up with this. Genuine faith in God is marked by humble submission to Jesus. Now, now we'll talk a little bit more about this in the weeks to come. But look at verse 27 through 33. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking into the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another. I like to see them huddling up like the three stooges. What do we do now, guys? And they said, if we say from heaven, he'll say, why then didn't you believe him? But shall we say from man? Well, they were afraid of the people for all hell that John really was a prophet. I love that they don't even really care about the actual answer to the question. All they care about is preserving their way of life. What's the answer that we should say that gets us the life we want to live, that keeps us in authority and in control? So, verse 33, they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Well, here's the reality. These religious leaders basically are asking, what right do you have to do what you've just done? They're saying, Jesus, what right do you have to take over the temple the way you just did? What what right do you have to overthrow our way of doing things. They had already made up their mind about Jesus. They were already plotting to have him killed. This question wasn't about a sincere question or a sincere answer. This was just about them trying to trip Jesus up in his words. But for this morning, what I want us to just think about is the major takeaway here. These religious leaders are rejecting the authority of Jesus by saying, Jesus, you don't have the right to come and disrupt our lives. Let me just cut to the chase, temples of God. It is easy for us to look down our noses at the spiritual leaders for rejecting Jesus. But how do you and I respond when Jesus comes to our lives and starts turning the tables of our world upside down? How do we respond when Jesus wants to change our way of doing things? In other words... Who is really in control of your life, you or Jesus? And before you answer that too quickly, let me ask this Does your life reflect what you say is your answer? Is your life marked by the fruit of Jesus being in charge? I wanna encourage us this morning to once again lay our lives down before Jesus and say this, and this is not an easy thing to pray because oftentimes Jesus takes us up on the offer. Jesus, change whatever you want to change. Jesus, do whatever you want to do. What would it look like as the temple of God. If your life wasn't just marked by the beautiful leaves of religion that would bring you out to a service like this, but was marked by the spiritual fruit of believing something about Jesus that causes you to say, Jesus, my life and all I have belong to you. Do whatever you want to do. Authentic spiritual power comes through genuine faith in God whose name is Jesus. As we offer confident prayer to God, gracious forgiveness to each other, and humble submission to Jesus as our Lord. And may we not be fig trees. May we be filled with the spirit of Almighty God as his temple you bow your heads in prayer with me this morning? How is the Holy Spirit stirring you to respond to the truth of God's word today? Have you ever come to the place of faith in your, faith, placing your faith and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Are you forgiven and restored to God? Do you know? beyond any shadow of a doubt that you are the child of God, that heaven is your home and that Jesus is your Lord and Savior. If not right now, call on Christ to save you. Acknowledge your faith and trust in his perfect life, his sacrificial death on the cross and the power of his resurrection to bring you a brand new kind of life. Call on Jesus today. For all of you who are saying, I would trust in Jesus. I'm following Jesus. That makes you the temple of God. And is your life marked by the spiritual power of God's spirit? Being expressed through passionate, confident prayer. Gracious forgiveness to others. Humble submission to Jesus' Lord. Father, we trust that you will lead us by your spirit into what it looks like to follow after Jesus. God, our claim is not perfection. Our claim is forgiveness and restoration. Our claim is that Jesus is doing and giving to us what we cannot do or give to ourselves through his redeeming power. Father, would you fill us as individuals today with the Holy Spirit of Christ? Would you cause us to be the display of your glory as your hands and feet in this community to the people of this world? We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.